From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Bagan, and this is Glitter and Doom. My fiance and I are talking about trying to have a baby. And if you're a personal friend of mine, this is a fun way to find out, right? We've been talking about it for a long time because it's complicated. And I know what you're thinking. Queer women love to process, which is true, but there are just so many things that hetero couples never have to think about when it comes to the technical process of making a baby as a queer couple. And we are even so much more privileged than couples where neither person has a womb that's open for business. So on top of the normal stuff, whose egg, what sperm, from where, how many thousands or tens of thousands of dollars is this going to cost? There's gender stuff, too, because my partner is non-binary. She's not a mom, but she's also not a dad. So there's a lot of logistics, even more feelings, and every single rom-com where there's an accidental pregnancy that brings the protagonists together seems like science fiction. It's all really complicated, but nowhere near as complicated as the pregnancy that is at the center of the book, Detransition Baby. I'm Tori Peters. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a writer in Brooklyn. Tori Peters is the author of Detransition Baby, which at its most reductive is about three people trying to have a baby together. There's Katrina, the half-Asian cis woman who is actually pregnant. Then there's Ames, Katrina's boyfriend, who is the other party responsible for this pregnancy. Ames was formerly Amy, a trans woman. But he's now living once again as a man after detransitioning. And finally, there's Reese, a trans woman who has partnered with Ames when he was Amy. Reese wants to be a mother more than anything. Ames feels dysphoric about the idea of becoming a father. And Katrina does not want to be a single mom. Can they solve all their problems by parenting as a triad? In comparison, my baby issues seem pretty tame. The book is not only extremely relevant to my current life, it's also a great read. Tori writes in such a way that you begin to develop real intimacy with her characters. I still find myself thinking about them weeks after finishing the book. I've never encountered trans women characters quite like this. So textured and multidimensional, and I've certainly never seen the stigmatized topic of detransitioning handled in such a nuanced and sensitive fashion. That is certainly because Tori is herself a trans woman, and it's safe to say that Detransition Baby is the first novel by a trans woman about trans women released by a Big Five publisher. You've written and spoken about writing for trans women, about their being your primary audience, and about how a community of trans girls started to form who were deciding to write for each other. And I'm curious about what it felt like for you to write before you made that choice, or if that was a conscious choice. I had started out in a fairly traditional like writing trajectory where I got an MFA, and I was writing what I like to, I call it sort of for everybody and nobody. You know, anybody could understand it, but that also meant that there was nobody actually who I was like really talking to when I wrote that stuff. And I didn't really think too much about audience. And then what, after I transitioned, I was still sort of writing about trans stuff in that way where I, I was had a very general idea of who I was writing for. And then I met a bunch of trans women who were writing in Brooklyn, Sybil Lamb, Imogen Binney, Casey Platt, 
And they were part of a scene that was centered around this press in Brooklyn called Topside Press. And the idea of that press was that um, you were writing really for trans women. And for me, when I began to think about an audience of trans women, was that, number one, I didn't have to slow down to explain things. I could write at a full speed instead of sort of 70% story and and 30% sort of like, here's what it means to be trans or whatever. I could do write at 100%, just full story. And that was something that I think came from other minority writers. Like I often cite Toni Morrison in that, that Toni Morrison wrote explicitly for Black women and everyone else could keep up. And it turned out that everybody else could keep up. And sort of similarly with trans writing, when I wrote and thought about a trans audience, it turned out cis people could also, they could keep up. But the second, and I think more important piece of writing for a trans audience is it simply made me a better writer. Like what I had to bring to impress trans people when talking about trans stuff was so much more than what I had to bring for just like a general audience. Like if I was to write about doing a hormone shot, for instance, I could tell most cis people about a hormone shot and they'd be interested. They'd be like, oh, what, like, what's it feel like when you are on hormones for a while? But trans girls have been doing that for so long. You know, they'd yawn in my face if I just was like, here's some stuff about hormones. So if I wanted to write about hormones, I had to like really bring it. I had to raise the bar. So Detransition Baby, despite your coming from this sort of indie publishing scene, is very much not an independently published book. Was it in your mind at all, or did it impact the way that you wrote this book to think about the expansion of audience for this novel, you know, the knowledge that cis people would be reading what you were writing? When I was in that sort of indie world, I thought about it really along identity lines. I'm writing for trans women. And over a number of years, I sort of found that there is no singular idea of a trans woman who would be receptive to my work. Like, there's trans women who hate my work, there's trans women who like my work, there's trans women who are indifferent to my work. So instead of thinking about like, oh, I'm going to write along identity lines, I began to think along affinity lines, where like, I'm writing for people who have affinity of, of my work. So... I still had a pretty targeted audience, but it was along this idea of affinity. And as a shorthand for that affinity, you know, I dedicated the book to divorced cis women. And the reason I did that is that I felt like what the affinity I had was people who had a sort of break in their life where they had lived their life a certain way, laboring under certain like illusions, and then something stopped working and they had to start over without being angry that they had to start over or being bitter about what they'd lost. And they also couldn't reinvest in the illusions of the past. And, you know, sort of the easy thing that I pointed to a lot was divorced women, because I felt this affinity, this way that we had both started over and that it caused us to see the world in a certain way. I am part of that affinity group. I am, in fact, a divorced cis woman, and I'm also half Chinese like Katrina and queer and thinking about babies with my non-binary partner. So there are a lot of entry points into the book for me, but there were absolutely times when I worried that my reading this book as a cis woman was some kind of trespass. There's a scene in the book that takes place not only before Amy detransitions and becomes Ames, but before she transitions in the first place. So in the scene, Amy is in college and identifies as a cross-dresser, 
but she can't get the clothes and makeup that she wants because she's mortified by the idea of going into the women's clothing section at a department store. So she meets another crossdresser, Patrick, online, and he takes her shopping. Picture an anonymous strip mall, veneered in a two-red brick, housing a subway franchise, a vacuum cleaner store, and, sandwiched between the two, a dingy painted sign that read, Glamour Boutique. Now picture Amy's disappointed face. With a name like Glamour Boutique, she had been naively expecting, well, glamour. Three-way mirrors, flattering directional lighting, and sleek dresses hung sparingly on brushed metal rails. Instead, racks of clothing cramped the small space. The clothing mostly fell into two categories, frumpy or sexy, like the clientele wanted to either deflect all attention from themselves or wild out in one big, skin-revealing splurge. In the back hung black latex and vinyl fetish gear, French-made outfits, schoolgirl ensembles, and frilly, sissy party dresses. Skipping ahead, Glamour Boutique got fun after about a half hour. The clerk introduced herself as Jen. As Amy's jitteriness faded, Jen actually began to help Amy with clothes. The sense of women advising each other on outfits, of her inclusion in that feminine right, nearly overwhelmed Amy. It was more than she could have hoped for. Wearing the breast forms and bra, she wanted to try on everything. Not just the fetish clothes, items she'd only ever seen online, but simple dresses as well. But then, skipping forward again, at one point, Patrick stood on one leg, working a pair of pantyhose up the calf of his other, while Jen stood in front of him with a French-made outfit at the ready, when the bell above the door chimed. In walked a pleasant-looking woman, plump with loosely curled blonde hair, and her teenage daughter, who looked healthy like maybe she was on the soccer team, an impression that Amy had because she was wearing casual athletic gear. The two of them were mid-laugh, perhaps lured into the store by the super fun-sounding name, Glamour Boutique. What mother and daughter wouldn't have fun with a little glamour on an outing together? Alarmed comprehension dawned on the mother's face as she took in the store, but by then it was too late. Patrick, Amy, and Jen had all seen her come in. Turning in horror would let everyone know what she thought of them. No, she would show her daughter how to play it cool. Amy's joy in having found a feminine space meant especially for her dimmed as the light fades when a heavy cloud crosses the sun, then winked out completely. The sense of safety that she had spun over the store vanished. Everything on the racks shrugged off their previous disguises to reveal themselves as tawdry and desperate. Inwardly, she disavowed the space. This store did not reflect her. She did not truly belong there. As I read this passage, I had the thought, am I the mom? Am I intruding on this safe space for trans women? And even if I am, for lack of a better word, an ally, does my gaze pop the bubble of the safe space? What I'd say there is, I think there's two things going on. Those cis women, actually, they didn't do anything wrong. They tried to be chill, right? And what was dangerous about them was, one, the possibility that they were actually disgusted by what they saw by those trans women, you know, trying on their clothes and that they were just hiding their disgust. So that's a possibility. And if there are cis readers who are reading this book and they're, you know, disgusted, that maybe doesn't feel that good. But the second thing that I think is more important and that I'm much more interested in is the reason that those cis women in that scene were dangerous to the trans characters is the trans women's own shame. 
right? That that's actually what made that moment dangerous is that they were so ashamed of themselves. These are trans women who hadn't yet come out, hadn't yet come to terms with their desires. And so when they felt like their desires were exposed by these women walking in on them, they were so ashamed of themselves. Had they been trans women who were like totally cool with like, you know, what their desires were, like the ways that they wanted to dress up, number one, they probably wouldn't have been in that store. But number two, two cis women walking in on them wouldn't have been a big deal. They would have been like, yeah, this is like, I'm not ashamed of who I am. I'm not ashamed of what I'm up to. So like, have fun browsing alongside me. And that I think is like a distinction that I really like to sort of point out is that there are trans women who feel like I overexposed things from trans community in this book that I wrote about very intimate things in our community. And to me, it's like, well, are you ashamed of what we are and what we do? Are you ashamed of us? Like, if you're not ashamed of us, who cares that other readers might see it? Like, the things I write about in this, yeah, sure, they're intimate, but like, I've processed my way through them. I don't have any shame. And why wouldn't I share it? I'm proud of what we've done. I'm proud of what I've learned. I have things to say to cis women who I, you know, I've learned from cis women, and this is my chance to speak back to them. So when, when people say like, oh, you know, I can't believe cis women are reading this, I'm sort of like, well, well what is it in here that you're worried that cis women might find out? And I think usually it turns out that the real danger isn't cis women's disgust. Occasionally it is, but usually it's not. The real danger is the way that that gaze causes us to like realize our own self-disgust, which can be extremely painful. I think any member of a minority group can probably relate to this. A book or a TV show or a movie written by a member of your community that is full of inside jokes and lovingly exposes the foibles of your own people. Oh my God, this is too real. You think, feeling fully seen, perhaps for the first time. But then Luke, your roommate's boyfriend, walks into the room and starts laughing too. And all of a sudden, everything changes. The fear, of course, is that the laughter is no longer a with, it's an at. Like, I can make fun of Shane from the L Word's truly, truly terrible sense of style, but if a straight person says one slightly critical thing about her hair, which is, to be clear, also truly terrible, I'm like, keep her name out your mouth. You're looking very Shane today. I especially feel this way about the ABC sitcom Fresh Off the Boat, based on Chef Eddie Huang's memoir about growing up in an immigrant Taiwanese family in Orlando. For me, as the child of an immigrant Chinese mother, the show really blurs the line between network sitcom and literal documentary. Like the episode when Eddie and his brothers discover that what they had thought was a drying rack for dishes is a machine called a dishwasher a modern American marvel that will wash dishes for you. This family doesn't believe in dishwashers. Who was there when we moved in will never use it. Why not? Because it's wasteful. It makes you soft and it's hard on the dishware. Chinese people respect their nice plates. That's why they're called China. My mother, after 70 years in the USA, has softened somewhat, but she still insists on thoroughly washing every plate by hand so that the dishwasher is more of a dish rinser. There are also the scenes that show the Huangs at Costco. They love deals and they love freebies, so much so that the sample lady knows them by name. Just like the employees at the Salvation Army would shout, Henry, 
when my grandfather walked through the door like he was Norm in Cheers. But most especially, there's a scene where the homesick mother of the family, Jessica, laments, I miss the Taiwanese markets back in DC. They make me feel so calm. Hard cut to... We see Jessica in a crowded market with bins full of produce and ducks with bronze skin hanging by their necks. The customers are yelling over one another and fighting for the best vegetables, and Jessica alternates between guarding the eggplants she has secured and using them as a weapon to threaten those who would snatch her prize. This is my exact experience of markets in China. Personal space is not a thing. And if you think you're going to get your hands on the best bok choy by patiently waiting your turn, you have already lost. But when I think about someone who isn't Chinese watching this scene, or to broaden it slightly, maybe somebody who isn't Chinese or from an adjacent affinity group, as Tori might say, like an immigrant from somewhere other than China, I get real uncomfortable. I'm like, this reinforces every negative stereotype about Chinese people that white Americans have. And I go from thinking, oh man, it is so great that this show exists on network TV, to thinking, oh my God, I can't believe we're showing people this. I mean, I, I understand that, but I also think that, you know, there are problems in the trans community. There are difficult things. And when you know that something is going on and you're ashamed of it and you're not able to like talk about it without the sort of like quietness of shame, is that it festers. And so I think that a lot of the things that are painful, you know, between trans women is that a lot of it can get better with sort of sunlight on it, where we can say, look, this is what's going on between us. These are things that are hard. And that just the act of naming a lot of what's difficult and not being afraid to sort of have these conversations can help in the sort of stuff that I was naming. Things like the question of detransition and the question of regret with detransition. Like, if we're ashamed of the fact that some people detransition, then we have to pretend there's nobody who ever has regret about transition. And that means that then when you're going through transition and it's extremely hard and you're feeling regret, you feel extremely alone and isolated with that regret. Whereas like, if you could actually realize that there's like a lot of people who like realize that this process is very, very difficult and that regret when you lose things is a natural part of change. And then you can talk about that regret and you can process it. Things might be healthy. But the idea, for instance, that like trans women can't have any regret about what they lose, you know, and trans men too, obviously. What you lose, you, you have to be able to name it. You have to be able to talk about it. And it has to be sort of made normal sized. Like there's lots of reasons to have regret. You can move across the country for a job and then you you know, the job doesn't work out and you regret taking that job and moving across the country. But then it's not like people are like, well, you should never move across the country for a job. It was like, no, it just didn't work out that time. And something similar, I think, can happen with the transition where if you can just talk about what the regret is and if you can just make it open, that doesn't mean that the whole idea of transition is good or the whole idea of detransition is bad. It's individual circumstances of feelings of regret, which happen for any number of people in any number of, of ways. I love the analogy about moving cross-country because it's like in order to win these hard-won 
victories of acceptance from, you know, mainstream heteronormative culture, whatever, right? It's like it has to become so black and white. Um, it has mm. to become so absolutist. Like I'm thinking of Cynthia Nixon when she was saying that like being with her wife was a choice and faced just this tremendous amount of backlash from the gay community where it's like, hello, like that's not our messaging. Our messaging right now yeah. is that it's not a choice because this is like, you know, a genetic imperative. And you've just set our movement back five years. The problem is, of course, that then Cynthia Nixon's experience is erased. My experience is erased. I've dated men, I've dated women, I've dated people who don't identify as either. So, yeah, being in a queer relationship is a choice for me. But being embattled and marginalized means that sometimes we lose nuance. It's like every LGBTQ person had to get together and agree on what was going to be the most politically efficient way to gain rights. Love is love. It's not a choice. And the narrative had to be clear and airtight. So Cynthia, shh. The same can be said of detransitioning. And to be clear about what we mean by that, I'm talking about when a person transitions, say from male to female, and then decides to detransition back to male. This idea of detransitioning has been weaponized by TERFs, that's trans-exclusionary radical feminists, and religious conservatives. Those who argue that there are vast numbers of people who were preyed upon by the trans agenda as youths became confused, transitioned, and then realized later that they weren't in fact trans and detransitioned. So young people shouldn't be allowed to transition because they will surely come to regret it. And this has become such a talking point by the conservative right that the response kind of has to be, this isn't a thing. You love to talk about detransitioning, just like you can't shut up about third trimester abortions, but statistically, neither is a thing. And why are we wasting time talking about it? So where does that leave people who actually do detransition or consider detransitioning? This is what Tori has decided to take on in her book. She writes with great sensitivity about all the reasons why someone might detransition that have nothing to do with fickleness or confusion. I feel pretty entitled to speak about it from my own experience. And, and people have asked me, well, you know, you didn't detransition. How come you got to write about it? And for me, there were times in my life where like the possibility of detransition lived. It was a real possibility for me. You know, I didn't carry through with it, but it was something I considered. And I feel very entitled to talk about the things that I considered or the, or the whys of it. And the character that I created, I took from my own experience and my own, you know, low points where I was like, maybe I would detransition. Um, and I gave it to that character. And the reasons that I was feeling, you know, that I felt low were, were not because I was like, oh, I'm not trans, right? You know, these, I was so mistaken. Turns out there's no such thing as gender or, or whatever, you know. The reasons I wanted to detransition is that it was really hard to be a trans woman. You know, I, I lost a lot and the opportunities that I had were, were more scarce. At that time, I was, you know, recovering from a kind of breakup. I was very lonely. And it was like, my life sure was, you know, in many ways, easier before I transitioned. And so I was like, maybe those problems that I had before, you know, interfered less with my life than these very material, immediate problems I'm having right now. So I considered detransition. And I think that that's basically what the character Amy, who detransitions into Ames, 
experiences Ames is living the way he's living because he's kind of done a calculus and come out with like ultimately my life is a bit easier if I'm not living as a trans woman or it doesn't hurt quite as badly at least because he's sort of dissociated and he can just make money and he can kind of go through his life you know a little distanced and he's trying to make peace with that over the course of the book that sort of logic of this is enough this is fine it begins to unravel for him and that's one of the things that the book explores there's about six months that i really think of where that that inspired that character but i didn't want to sit with those feelings that i had all by myself and giving them to ames and letting ames speak them was really freeing for me and i think it's been freeing for other people who've read that character i'm sure that you know if this is one of those topics that we must not speak about, you know, like to have it brought into the light in a way that is not cloaked in shame, as you mentioned. I can't imagine what that must feel like for people who have felt that they have been alone. According to a study from GLAAD, 80% of Americans don't actually personally know someone who is transgender. So most of the information that Americans get about who transgender people are, what our lives are and are about, comes from the media. That is Laverne Cox, the executive producer of Sam Fader's incredibly comprehensive documentary, Disclosure, which charts and analyzes the depiction of trans characters in film and TV, from D.W. Griffith to Boys Don't Cry. A recurring theme is that trans people have not, until very recently, been the ones to tell their own stories. So at worst, you have these trans characters who end up being serial killers, like in Silence of the Lambs, or a source of disgust, like in The Crying Game, or the butt of a joke, like in Ace Ventura. And even at best, the depiction of the trans experience, as written by cis people, is truly bizarre. Like if Steve Carell's character in The 40-Year-Old Virgin were to write erotica. Yeah, they were nice. You know, and like you grab a woman's breast, and it's... And you, you feel it, and it feels like a bag of sand when you're touching it. Like, take the sequence in Disclosure that examines scenes from movies where people who were assigned female at birth are passing as men. Yentl, starring Barbara Streisand, Victor Victoria with Julie Andrews, Just One of the Guys, a 1980s teen comedy that's a spin on Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, and 2011's Albert Knobs, starring Glenn Close. What all these films have in common, aside from cis women playing transmasculine characters, is a scene where the main character reveals that they are not, in fact, a cis man. And they do this by ripping open their shirts to expose their heaving bosoms. Where do you get off having tits? You crude-timing son of a bitch! He's a woman! Oh! Stay away from me, please! What are you, a demon? Like, what a truly bananas cinematic trope. Picture this. You're Yentl, and you're living stealth. Like, everyone thinks you're a boy, and you can't reveal that you've actually just cut your hair short and assumed your dead brother's name so you can go to yeshiva. But now, you've fallen in love, and you have to come out to Mandy Patinkin. Would you, A, have a vulnerable conversation with him after shul? B, write him a vulnerable letter and slip it under his door? C. Rip your shirt open and show him your tits. I get it. It's the movies. 
but it really demonstrates the retrograde obsession that cis people, including the writers of these films, have with bodies. Well, what are you? Do you have boobs? Let this just be your daily reminder that not all women have breasts, not all people who have breasts are women, and also, it's none of your business. Detransition Baby was recently optioned into a TV series, so congratulations on that. Thank you. I wrote the pilot and, you know, people are liking it and I've gotten really lucky. Um, Instead of me sort of having to go to them and, and tell the story that they want, I've actually felt like people are starting to come to trans women and say like, well, you know the story, how do we help you tell it? Did you have any or do you have any rules around how this show gets made, about what you want to see, about what will not happen? I actually grew up loving sitcoms. I think they're kind of just like a, a, a pleasure, like a comfort for me to watch, to watch sitcoms and to laugh, you know, whatever it is, three times a minute that a really good sitcom will make you do. I have sort of two things that I'm trying to do. I want to be reasonable about how a show actually gets made and not try and like reinvent the wheel. You know, if a big star wanted to be in the show, maybe I would find a role for that big star. But that also means like what role that they have would be, it'd be really important to me to be clear about that and to like frame it really well. So I want trans people to play trans characters. I want there to be trans writers in the writer's room. I want there to be uh, Asian American writers in the writer's room. At the same time, I want to sort of move the conversation forward in which there's been, you know, a decade now of trans women having to fight to get roles, especially in order to just play trans women. And for, you know, the 2000, the aughts, trans women were played mostly by cis men and it really offended people. And now we're starting to see that trans women are playing trans roles. But what does that also then mean in terms of the opportunities for trans women? Like, can trans women play cis roles? How do you start to like sort of break this so it's not just a one-to-one really rigid way of doing art? And so I've got some you know ideas and sort of devices that I'm hoping I'll get to build into the show to sort of maybe offer some more opportunities for trans women to play cis roles or for people to think about transness not so much in terms of like the body that represents transness on the screen but transness kind of more broadly as it can be portrayed all of that stuff is, are things that i'm hoping that this show can begin to develop in the culture or maybe push it a little bit farther because i think other people have actually developed it quite a lot well i can't wait to see what role scarlett johansson wants yeah. <laughs> I look forward to that. I mean, she's been she's been calling me a lot. I've been like I'm Scarjo, you know, you just gotta wait. <laughs> the first time I heard about Detransition Baby before any of the reviews hit was on the Instagram feed of my best friend from high school, who is trans and uses AM air pronouns. When I told my friend that I was interviewing Tori, I asked if there were any questions that A wanted me to ask her thinking, I don't know, that maybe my friend would be curious about something that I hadn't even considered from my cis perspective. And in a way, I was kind of right. Please tell her her BMW is sick. I feel bad that all this attention is being thrown at Tori. It must be exhausting and stressful. I just want to know about her bike, lol. Um, I don't actually have a BMW. <gasps> I do have a Yamaha. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh man, that is like a major faux pas that just got committed. <laughs> but I do really love my Yamaha and I used to have a KLR 650, which looks a lot like the BMW bike. So that's probably what happened. But um, yeah, I bought a motorcycle here in Brooklyn a couple years ago because I just felt like I moved here and I felt really meek. I felt like I was like on the street and I was like kind of afraid of people. It was when I first moved to Brooklyn, I was like more recently after my transition and I was like nervous. And I was just like, I don't want to be meek all the time. Like I kind of want to take up space in like a cool way, you know, but also in a way where I don't have to mess with anybody. So if, if someone gives me a hard time, I can just rev the engine and disappear. Um, and the answer to that was like a motorcycle. It was like, oh, I can see the city and I can feel like a little bit more powerful or, or fearsome or formidable on this motorcycle. But then, of course, once I got the motorcycle, everybody was just like, did I borrow my boyfriend's motorcycle or something? Cool. So cool. then... <laughs> So I painted it pink so that everybody knew it was really mine. So then it was like all these small steps where you're like, this makes sense, this makes sense, this makes sense. And then suddenly you're the person riding around Brooklyn on a pink motorcycle and you're like, well, I wasn't expecting to get here, but here I am. (laughs) (laughs) There is a one word solution to almost all the problems in trans media. We just need more. And that way, the occasional clumsy representation wouldn't matter as much because it wouldn't be all that there is. That's writer and actress Jen Richards, again from the documentary Disclosure. It's a ton of pressure on Tori, as the trans author of a mainstream trans novel, to correct all that clumsy representation. Which, of course, she can't because she is one person, with one voice and one lived experience. But Detransition Baby will hopefully open the door. I want to read books about and by trans people of color and disabled trans people and trans sex workers and trans immigrants. We can keep up. Can the publishing industry? <laughs> <laughs>